You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A quick pre-note to this episode. We are recording this on the 20th of February 2021 and a week ago... Most of the Netherlands was covered in snow. Today, however, the sun is shining, the birds and the early flowers are poking their heads out, and spring is in the air. As you all know, we here at Republic of Amsterdam Radio pride ourselves on an exceptional level of randomness, and today we are randomly going to record this episode from a houseboat in the centre of Amsterdam. What does that mean? Well, you might notice a different audio experience today from what you're normally used to. You might hear the odd bird noise, creak, the sound of a diesel boat engine, sirens or a tram in the background. We invite you to look at this as an immersive experience into Dutch life. On to the episode. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 37, Mary Marries Maxie. The eruption of violence across the Low Countries in March and April of 1477 led to Mary of Burgundy effectively being in the custody of the city of Ghent. Although the rebellious citizens of Ghent had taken lethal retribution for what they saw as the crimes of the previous administration, they had done nothing to solve the most pressing issue facing the Low Countries, which was, en fait, the marauding French army. Despite the signing of the Great Privilege, in the chaos of the invasion and uprisings, some territories such as Gelders and Liège proclaimed independence. Some had alternative suggestions for succession, and it seemed a real possibility that all of the Low Countries might just be eaten up by Louis XI. Everybody knew that it was necessary to get the much-harried Duchess Mary married, but the question was, to whom? Louis XI had offered up his son, the Dauphin. Charles the Bold and the Emperor had already arranged for her betrothal to Maximilian of Habsburg, and now the emboldened city of Ghent decided to throw another name into the mix, Adolf, the once again Duke of the once again independent Helders. But in the end, after much correspondence with Margaret of York and an extremely slow journey down the Rhine, it was Maximilian of Habsburg that Mary would eventually marry on the 19th of August 1477. It was an event which would ultimately bind the Low Countries to one of Europe's longest-lasting dynasties. We finished off the previous episode with the public beheadings of two of the top figures in the Burgundian administrative apparatus, Huguenet and Humbercourt, in front of a raucous crowd on the Freidachmark Square in Ghent on the 3rd of April 1477. 
These two had been accused of taking bribes and infringing city privileges, which as far as we can tell is basically part of the job description for any official running any government apparatus in any period of history. They were also accused of treason and were found guilty after a short and dubious legal process. The immediate cause of their arrest had been a scandalous letter which was delivered to ambassadors from the States General by Louis XI, the contents of which apparently stated that the authority in Burgundy lay solely in the hands of the new Duchess, Mary, and it asked Louis only to deal with Humbercourt and Huguenot in their peace negotiations. It was signed by Mary of Burgundy, Margaret of York, and the Lord of Ravenstein. This letter was a slap in the face for the States General, who had only a few weeks earlier managed to win the long list of concessions from Mary, known collectively as the Great Privilege. And when the ambassadors returned to Ghent and interrupted an assembly of the court which was taking place by theatrically revealing the letter in front of everybody, well, as we saw, all hell broke loose. What we didn't cover last episode, however, was what was actually going on at the meeting, which had been so dramatically disturbed. Present were Mary's stepmother, Margaret of York, one of her other closest advisors, Adolf of Cleves, the Lord of Ravenstein, Louis of Bourbon, the Prince Bishop of Liège, who we know, and another of the major figures from that principality as well, a guy called William de la Marc. We actually met Delamarque briefly in episode 33 during the Siege of Neuss, but we didn't get right into him properly, instead just referencing his fantastic nickname, the Wild Boar of the Ardennes. The House of Lamarck were one of the most prominent members of the German nobility in the area, being the ruling dynasty in Cleves, as well as having had a few prince bishops of Liège and archbishops of Cologne in their family tree. William Delamarque, the wild boar of the Ardennes, had been a part of the uprisings against the Prince Bishop of Liège in the late 1460s, and after the city's destruction in 1468, he made peace with Charles, and then basically kept a low profile on his lands. But as you might recall, when Charles was at Neuss, those who chafed under his yoke, and who he had antagonized in the past, took the opportunity to start prodding him with their sticks while he was otherwise occupied, and William Delamarque was just one such character. He joined forces with the exiled Liegeois rebel leader, another guy we know, Race de Lintra, and together they went about raiding parts of Luxembourg and Liège, burning down the saint Laurent Abbey and killing the vicar general of the Prince Bishopric. Despite this, however, Louis of Bourbon, the Prince Bishop of Liège, had been able to successfully defend himself against these attacks and maintain control over Liège. After Charles's death at Nancy, a peace was arranged between the Prince Bishop and William de la Marque, upon which Louis of Bourbon began to shower him with gifts and important jobs, such as appointing him his chief bodyguard and making him the chief bailiff of Liège, no doubt in an attempt to keep his friends close and his enemies even closer. So it was that the two former rivals now appeared together in front of Mary at this assembly in order to try and plead their case for concessions from the Duchess towards the long-suffering Liège. After the Liège Wars, the territory had been burdened with massive financial and administrative punishments, which were pretty much intended to keep the Liègeois obedient 
and solely under the Burgundian thumb forever. Louis of Bourbon appeared before Mary to try and get out of the large tribute payment that was due and that he had been obliged to pay to Charles, as well as to obtain money from Mary to compensate Delamarque for the loss of one of his castles during the war. To quote Philip de Comines about this, quote, William Delamarque was a fine gentleman and a brave soldier, but of a cruel and malicious temper, and one who favoured the citizens of Liège, and had been always an enemy to the Duke of Burgundy's family and to the bishop himself. The Princess of Burgundy gave this Delamarque 15,000 florins, partly on the bishop's account and partly to oblige him to espouse her interest. End quote. Mary was not nearly in as strong a position as Charles had been to impose the harsh retributive measures on Liège, and in the turmoil surrounding the arrests of Humbercourt and Huguenet on the 19th of March 1477, she renounced her rights over the territory, and Liège was, you're never going to believe this, once again free from Burgundian domination. Louis of Bourbon would then try his best to keep Liège neutral in the conflict between France and Burgundy. Just as a quick aside, it's interesting to wonder what Louis of Bourbon and William Delamarque must have thought when they saw Humbercourt, who they surely harboured pretty ill feelings towards after his tenure of governance in Liège, facing the wrath of mob justice in Ghent. Another topic which was discussed during this assembly of the court was the question of who the Duchess Mary was finally going to marry. As we have seen, the issue of Mary's marriage and the lands and titles that came along with it, and which would effectively become controlled by whoever ended up becoming her husband, was without a doubt the key to ending the conflict with France. You will remember that one of Louis XI's ambitions when invading the Burgundian lands had been to force Mary to marry his son, the six-year-old Dauphin Charles. Several of Mary's advisors and relatives, such as Huguenet, Humbercourt, and Louis of Bourbon, had been in favour of this proposed match. Others, however, were less convinced, such as the Lady Hallivine, who combines quotes as saying of the Dauphin, quote, that there was more need of a man than a boy, that her mistress was capable of bearing a child, which was what her dominions wanted more than anything else, end quote. It's a good point. Given that they were in this precarious situation due to the fact that Mary was born with the wrong genitalia to be able to rule, it would be odd to then marry her off to a child who presumably wouldn't be capable of having children of his own for quite a few years yet. As it was, however, all of this came to nothing since a strong anti-French sentiment was aroused by the invasion and occupation of so many of the southern Burgundian lands. On top of that, the appearance of the letter resulted not only in Humbercourt and Huguenet losing their heads, but also in Mary feeling extremely distrustful towards her godfather, French King Louis XI. So support for this match between the Dauphin and Mary quickly dried up. Another possibility was for Mary to marry one of the English nobility, thus bringing England more directly into the conflict with France. Philip de Comines suggests that perhaps Margaret of York attempted to get Mary to marry her brother, George, the Duke of Clarence. Remember though, Comines is now writing from Louis's court, and this may have just been a rumour intended to damage Margaret's reputation. She was, after all, forced to quickly flee after Huguenet and Humbercourt were arrested, lest she too should face the mob. Another suggestion is that 
Edward IV tried to get Mary to marry his wife's brother, the Earl of Rivers, who could offer Mary basically nothing she needed at that time, except a pretty cool-sounding title, the Lady of Rivers. Whatever the case, the English did not seem very interested in getting mixed up in the goings-on with Burgundy and France at this time. The terms of the Treaty of Picigny, which Edward IV had signed with Louis XI just a couple of years earlier, when he agreed not to invade France with Charles the Bold, guaranteed him a nice payment each year from Louis, as well as the betrothal of his daughter Elizabeth to Louis XI's son, the Dauphin, who, yes, is the same Dauphin that Louis had just been trying to get Mary to marry. King Edward was basically happy to take that money and just stay out of it. Also at this meeting, the Lord of Rabenstein, Adolf of Cleves, who was the Stadtholder General of the Low Countries, decided to put a new contender into this very early season of The Bachelorette by putting the case to Mary that she should marry his son, Philip of Cleves. Philip and Mary actually knew each other well, having grown up together. Philip's mother, Anne of Burgundy, was one of Mary's many aunts and had been one of the women responsible for educating her after the sudden and early death of her mother. His family was well respected throughout the Low Countries, which probably explains why his father didn't also get decapitated at the same time as Huguenet and Humbercourt. Mary, however, apparently just didn't really like the younger Robinstein, and although this proposal failed to get off the ground, Philip of Cleves is going to play quite an important role in the story in a future episode, so we just thought we should drop his name already. Mary didn't like him, but we've got to remember him. Philip of Cleves. Constantly looming over the consideration of these matches was the fact that French armies had overrun both the Duchy and County of Burgundy. They had taken the Somme towns back and were running through Artois, occupying the capital of Arras and threatening other major towns there. When Louis XI learned of the executions of Humbercourt and Huguenet, he made sure to send letters to their heirs. Remember, they were major landholders in France. In these letters, he assured them that their inheritances were safe, and he also heavily chastised the people of Ghent for the killings. In the broader picture, this was a misstep by Louis, as it served to tarnish his reputation further in the eyes of many people within different estates in the Low Countries. The whole region was basically there for Louis' taking, and he had just admonished one of the best possible allies he could have secured, Ghent. Louis then took to the field, personally leading the siege and capture of the towns of Hesdin and Boulogne. But with the mood in the Low Countries shifting against him, uprisings started to occur, such as in Arras. Delegates from the rebels in Arras were sent to Mary to try to get help from her, but they were intercepted by Louis' troops and immediately executed. He then had their heads put on public display to deter further disobedience. This didn't quite work, however. In his book about Louis XI, The Universal Spider, historian Paul Murray Kendall writes that the citizens of Arras actually took to taunting Louis with rhymes, such as, quote, Only when the rats on cats will dine can the king say, Arras is mine. And, When in June the enormous sea is frozen to immobility, the folk of Arras through ice and snow will leave their city, watch them go. End quote. 
Louis was able to re-establish control over Arras at the beginning of May, but not before actually being wounded himself in the fighting. In the period between March and June 1477, there were other fierce and violent revolts against the French across the occupied territories in Franche-Comte, Dijon, and Charolais. But still by the end of May, Louis' armies began penetrating further into the Low Countries, moving into Hanau, taking towns like Le Quesnoy, Terouane, Bethune, and Abbeville, as well as occupying Tournai. There were continual raids between those on the side of Mary and those on the side of Louis, and it must have been simply awful to have lived there as an everyday person trying to go about your business, but finding yourself in the middle of this uncontrolled violence. To quote 18th century French historian, with a name that you just have to say in a French accent, Charles Pinot Duclos, when the town of Aven was occupied by Louis' troops after having resisted against him. Quote, As they had fired upon the heralds sent to summon them, the king was resolved to make an example of the place. The inhabitants were all put to the sword, the houses pillaged, the walls raised, and the ditches filled up. End quote. It was during this convulsion of cruelty that a curious minor subplot twist occurred. The people of Flanders decided that they would try to take matters into their own hands and solve the dual problems of the French invasion and Mary's marriage in one fell swoop. The Flemish people had quite suddenly found themselves in possession of their duchess, who was basically being forced to stay in Ghent. Having forced away or killed so many of the important figures of the previous administration, the extremist elements, now running Ghent, found that they could take charge of things themselves. It was believed that what they really needed was somebody who would be able to take command of the military situation, a general who would be able to heroically inspire an army of Flemish against the French in a glorious repetition of the Battle of the Golden Spurs. And they believed that they had that person in their possession, a guy who had spent the last six years or so languishing as a prisoner of Charles the Bold in the castle of Courtreich, Adolf the Duke of Helders. In the previous episode, we mentioned how almost immediately upon hearing the news of Charles the Bold's death, the states of Helders, which had only relatively recently been conquered, decided that they had had enough of Burgundian rule already, and they wished to return to their previous ruler, Adolf. Well, the people of Flanders, but especially the citizens of Ghent who loved him so much they had made him an honorary citizen, decided that the best thing to do would be to get him out of prison, raise an army, stick him in charge of it, and have him go and get the French out of Tournai, where they were causing so many problems. If he was able to do this, then they would make sure he was married to Mary, thus linking Helders and Burgundy once more and ensuring a native dynasty would rule over the Low Countries. It's a perfect plan, right? The states of Helders were wary of the possibility of their new ruler being out of the country for a long time on campaign, so in the meantime, they had Adolf appoint his sister, Catherine, as regent in Helders. This ambitious plan started off promisingly, with the urban militias of Ghent, Ypres and Bruges contributing troops to a joint army that amounted to around 12 to 14,000 men. They set off towards Tournai under the command of the newly released Duke of Helders. Adolf's mission was to go and burn the outer-lying suburbs of Tournai before eventually seizing the town properly. 
The fatal flaw in his whole idea, however, was in the actual composition of the army. As we have seen time and again throughout this series, pretty much the only people the Flemish liked to fight against, with the exception of whoever was the current count or countess of Flanders, was with each other. The cities of Ghent and Bruges, in particular, were famous for their rivalry, and in this moment when cooperation between them would no doubt have been in all of their best interests, they just weren't able to do it. When a much smaller force of French troops, combined says only about 400, came out in the night to counter them, confusion broke out among the Flemish army. To again quote Charles Pinot du Clos, quote, the dissensions between the Gentinars and the citizens of Bruges, who composed his army, occasioned their marching with so little order and caution that La Sauvagère, the leader of the French force, coming up with only 40 lances, broke them at the first charge. End quote. The Duke of Helders, Adolf, tried his best to stand his ground and to protect the retreating troops, but in the fighting he was thrown off his horse and killed. His army disintegrated, and many hundreds were captured or also killed. Thus ended the meteoric comeback of Adolf, the Duke of Helders. We first met him in episode 28, when he came with his mother to plead for help from Philip the Good. We've seen him wage civil war against his father, take over Helders, be caught, languish in prison for six years, be released, and hailed as this heroic legend of the future, only to die almost immediately upon release, fighting on the behalf of the daughter of the man who had imprisoned him. Doesn't sound so glorious when you put it like that. After his death, the position of Duke of Helders passed on to his son, Charles of Egmond. Unfortunately for the pretensions of Helderian independence from Burgundy, when Charles the Bold had imprisoned Adolf, he had also taken his young children into custody and had them raised at his court. So after Adolf's death, they now remained in the care of Mary. Adolf's sister Catherine continued to rule as regent of Helders in place of the young Charles, but was challenged by her uncle, William of Egmont, who supported a pro-Burgundian faction. Helders will be in a state of flux throughout the next few years, and the anti-Burgundian sentiment there will make it a weak point over the next few decades for anyone attempting to once again unite the Low Countries. Adolf of Helder's death also definitely answered the question of who Mary was going to marry, because the number of potential suitors for her hand had now dwindled down to one. The Dauphin was no longer an option, Mary wasn't interested in marrying Philip of Cleves, the English had no suitable options to offer, and Adolf was dead. That left one man standing, the son of the Emperor, Maximilian of Habsburg. So much like the poorly defended Low Countries did in early 1477, we will now turn to him on the other side of this ad break. Welcome to Welcome back. The possibility of Mary marrying Maximilian of Habsburg had been floated around for more than a decade. The Habsburgs had an extensive lineage of nobility that had begun around Lake Constance, now in Switzerland, but eventually had come to rule large parts of the interior of Austria. You will recall Sigismund of Habsburg, the Duke of Austria, who had allied himself with Charles the Bold against the Swiss, before switching over 
to ally himself with the Swiss against Charles the Bold. Sigismund was the cousin of Frederick III, who was the first Habsburg to be chosen as Holy Roman Emperor. He certainly wasn't the last, however, given that they would monopolize that role for the next 500 odd years. The name Habsburg is going to appear a lot from here on out, because in that age-old game of European family feudalism, they would become the most successful at procreating, marrying their cousins, and passing their name and a really big chin onto future generations of rulers. In fact, they were so good at this that their family is often associated with a Latin saying that translates to, quote, let others wage wars. Thou, happy Austria, marry. End quote. That is getting way ahead of ourselves, though, because at this point, the Habsburgs were still in the early stages of their rise to international dominance. One of the key milestones in getting them there, however, is arguably this marriage between Mary and Maximilian. Maximilian will play a pivotal role in shaping wider European politics in the future and will also do an extremely good job at marketing himself. So far, we've only really spoken about him in passing, so, ladies and gentlemen, meet Maximilian von Habsburg. Maximilian was born on the 22nd of March, 1459, growing up in Wiener Neustadt, about 40 kilometers south of Vienna. As we have mentioned, his father Frederick III was the Holy Roman Emperor. His mother was Eleanor of Portugal, daughter of King Duarte of Portugal. Maximilian's parents did not often see eye to eye with each other and were famous for having clashing personalities. Upon his birth, Eleanor wished to name the child Constantine, hoping that this would set the young prince on a path to fighting back against the Ottomans. Frederick, however, insisted on naming him after a saint who had been martyred in the 4th century, who he had dreamed about years earlier and credited with saving his life. It's kind of obscure if you ask me, but the emperor, as emperors tend to do, got his way. Maximilian was their third child and the only surviving son. He therefore also carried the same weight of responsibility that we referred to as being Mary's burden, the heavy expectation of a great inheritance. Much like everywhere else in Europe, Lower Austria was prone to incessant infighting between contesting branches of various families. Maximilian got early first-hand experience in this. In 1462, at just the age of three, he and his parents were put to siege at the Hofburg Palace in Vienna by his uncle, Albert IV. The siege lasted long enough for all the inhabitants within to suffer great deprivations, no less the young prince, who is said to have walked around the grounds throughout, begging guards and other servants for bits of bread. That sounds like pretty good practice to become the future Holy Roman Emperor. At stages, Maximilian became critically ill, exacerbating a pre-existing but unidentified childhood illness, which, with hindsight, we diagnose as an acute case of being born in the 1400s. He is said to have had a speech defect, which greatly disappointed his father, and which tempered the rate at which Maximilian was able to learn or develop. Fortunately, he had a loving and spirited mother. Unfortunately, just like his future wife, he would tragically lose his mother at the age of eight. Nonetheless, he was the son of the emperor, so despite these setbacks, Maximilian was provided with a top-notch education, being an early recipient of the nascent 
humanist school of thought that had now begun to emerge in Europe. Much like Mary, he was linguistically talented, coming to learn seven languages in his life, and he had a great interest in literature. Maximilian learned history and astrology and was encouraged to get physically involved with things. Probably due to this, he became skilled at craftsmanship, horse breeding, and a host of other athletic activities. Also, like Mary, he was especially fond of hunting. As a young man, he would hunt wolves, wild boar, and chamois. Chamois being a type of goat in the mountains of Austria. Of course, he was also trained from a young age in military matters and seemed to have fully embraced and believed in the chivalric ideals, which were by this stage definitely on the wane. All of this would no doubt justify the mythologized heroic image of himself that he would later seek to embed in the consciousness of his subjects, especially through a set of poems he would later write called Toyodunk, and another work which he also apparently heavily contributed to called Der Weisskönig, The White King, which presented a three-part chivalric novel that was basically an exaggerated and fanciful biography of Maximilian. It should not be surprising to learn that, for all these reasons, he is often referred to as the Last Knight. The first time the idea of Mary marrying Maximilian was raised was in 1463, when Philip the Good was in discussions with Frederick about the possibility of going a crusading. The idea was brought forth as a way to align two of the most powerful dynasties of Christendom against the Turks. As we know, that planned crusade never eventuated beyond Philip's fantasies, and negotiations for the match between them did not get off the ground. It is quite quirky to think about the relative positions in these negotiations between the Duke of Burgundy and the Holy Roman Emperor. Being the Emperor meant having a great amount of esteem, which costs lots of money to uphold, but without really having that much power to make money. Philip the Bold, on the other hand, despite being technically subordinate to the Emperor, was probably more powerful than him and definitely way more wealthy. As we all know, Mary's hand was a very tempting prize to dangle in front of the upper nobility of Europe, so it wasn't really in the Burgundians' best interest to settle her future when she was still so young. The marriage was discussed again at Trier in 1473, as part of a deal which would join Mary and Maximilian, but also turn Burgundy into a kingdom, elevating Charles to an uncomfortably powerful royal position within the empire. Frederick, as you will recall, decided instead to literally run away from Charles at the very last minute. Then followed that uncomfortable conflict between Frederick and Charles at Neuss, which must have also thrown a spanner in the works, but nevertheless, in 1476, the two men once more agreed that their children would be married. As we saw in episode 35, when Charles was off fighting in those last months of his life, Mary and Margaret of York began making preparations for Mary's wedding to Maximilian, which was to be in either Aachen or Cologne. There was a flurry of correspondence between Mary and Margaret and Maximilian and Frederick. Mary wrote to Maximilian stating that she agreed with her father's intentions for them to be married and included a ring with the letter as a token of her goodwill. Fast forward to 1477 and the situation had once again dramatically changed. Frederick had now outlived both Philip the Good and Charles the Bold. 
and the time was now right for his son, Maximilian, to go swooping in and claim that Burgundian inheritance, which was up for grabs and quickly being chipped away at by Louis XI. Maximilian wrote to Mary in January, ensuring her that he still planned on going through with it. Most historians seem to agree that Margaret of York was the biggest supporter of the Habsburg marriage, and Burgundian ambassadors made their way to Austria to finalise the details. At the end of March, shortly after Humbercourt and Huguenet were arrested, Mary wrote again to Maximilian, entreating him to come to the Low Countries as soon as possible. In her book, Maximilian the Dreamer, 19th century historian Marion Andrews, who firstly wrote under the pen name Christopher Hare, and secondly, seems to have just based most of her work on Maximilian's fancy biography, Der Weisskönig, quotes Mary as writing, quote, Most dear and friendly lord and brother, from my heart I greet you. You must not doubt that I will agree to the treaty made between us by my lord and father, now in glory, and will be a true wife to you, for I may not doubt you. The bearer knows how I am hemmed in, though I cannot open my mind to him. May God grant us our heart's desire. I pray you not to linger, as your coming will bring help and comfort to my lands. But if you come not, my lands can look for no aid, and I may be driven to do that which I would not, by force against my will, if you forsake me. End quote. The implication could not have been much clearer. Hurry up and get here, or else I'm going to have to marry someone else. Margaret of York, who by that stage had removed herself from Ghent and was set up in her dowager town of Malines-slash-Mekela, also wrote to the emperor, ensuring him that she supported the match. Philip de Comines amusingly relates an account of a group of imperial ambassadors arriving the next month into the Low Countries, ready to conduct the final marriage negotiations. According to Comines, when the emperor's entourage turned up in Brussels, an order was sent to them to stop there, because delegates from the ducal side were on their way to see them. It turns out that Adolf of Cleves, the Lord of Ravenstein, was still desperately trying his best to get Mary to marry his son, Philip, and was intending on intercepting these ambassadors, turning them down, turning them around, and sending them back to Austria without success. But these ambassadors paid no attention to this demand to delay their trip and pressed on for Ghent nonetheless. They felt comfortable doing this because they had previously received a letter from Margaret of York warning them that something like this was probably going to happen. Well played, Margaret. Kamine says that, quote, Upon this information, the ambassadors advanced and taking no notice of the orders which they had received, went directly for Ghent, at which the Duke of Cleves was highly offended, but he knew nothing as yet of the inclination of the court ladies. End quote. The Lord of Ravenstein may have been one of the most highly respected and influential people in the Low Countries, but Margaret and Mary were savvy enough to have sidestepped his last-minute attempts to get what he wanted. When the ambassadors finally addressed the court... They produced the letter and diamond ring which Mary had earlier sent to Maximilian, and they asked her to publicly confirm in the court whether they had indeed come from her. When she said that this was, in fact, the case, the ambassadors expressed their delight, and a week later, on the 21st of April, Mary and Maximilian were married by proxy, which is to say they were married on paper, 
but still hadn't gone through all the ceremonies and rituals properly. Even at this juncture, there were still plenty of opportunities for everything to go pear-shaped. But before we go any further, we have to quickly divert you to everybody's favorite segment of this podcast, the reason you all listen. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The diamond ring, which we have now referred to a couple of times, this symbol of the engagement between Mary and Maximilian, is often quoted as being the first diamond engagement ring ever recorded in history. I'm not going to lie, I have not read every book that has ever been written, and I do not know a particularly great amount about diamond engagement rings, so I'm going to leave that caveat, lest we end up on the fake History Huntress's Twitter feed, but given that we cannot find anything contradicting this common assertion, and for the purposes of this sometime fanciful segment, we'll just say... Diamond engagement rings. Bet you didn't know they were Dutch. So back to it. The more diligent listeners might have noticed that in the lead up to Mary's proxy marriage with Maximilian, we didn't mention anything about the state's general. Yet, one of the terms of the great privilege, which they had foisted upon her in February, was that Mary would not get married without their explicit approval. But by this stage, the public sentiment had mellowed out somewhat, and the war with France was fomenting favourable feelings towards the Habsburg marriage. In early May, the estates of Brabant decided that they would make use of their right to assemble the states general of their own volition, and at a meeting in Lofer, they were addressed by the head of the Great Council, Jan de la Bouffery. He was able to diplomatically smooth over any offence the proxy marriage may have caused by saying that Mary was just going through with earlier plans that had already been decided upon by her late father. The States General accepted this reasoning on the condition that Maximilian agreed to respect all of those privileges which they had won from Mary. The marriage contract that was settled on amongst all this negotiation was indicative of the international nature of the marriage in such politically shifting times. Probably the most important part of it was the prenuptial agreement that both parties were effectively written out of each other's inheritances. Only prospective children that came from the marriage could line up for succession to either the Burgundian or Austrian entitlements. This meant that if Mary died without an heir and before Maximilian did, then he, as a foreigner, could neither continue to rule as the Duke of Burgundy nor pack up all of her property and take it back to Austria with him. Mary also couldn't do this with any of his property or belongings, but as mentioned before, comparing the wealth of Burgundy and Austria at this time is like comparing a peanut to an orchard. Different. Maybe it was a bit naive of the rich burghers of Flanders, Brabant and Holland, etc. to think that this piece of paper would make the son of the German emperor respect their urban autonomy, but what else were they supposed to do? So with everything arranged, Maximilian and a whole bunch of important German nobles began their journey towards the Low Countries. For a guy who had a robust interest in the ideas of chivalry, Maximilian must have been pretty chuffed that now here he was, a dashing young knight, literally in shining armour, setting off to rescue a princess in distress. And he made sure he had plenty of time to soak in all that glory of himself, because The trip he made towards Ghent has been described as one of the slowest journeys into the Rhinelands ever taken, departing Vienna on the last day of May, but not reaching Ghent until the 18th of August. One of the reasons for this sluggishness, according to Philip de Comines, 
is that Maximilian somewhat embarrassingly ran out of money along the way, so he got stuck in Cologne for a while, until Mary sent him enough money to be able to complete the journey. If that's not a red flag for the relationship, I don't know what is. <laughs> in the meantime, Louis XI was sending out letters to every German noble he could think of, trying his best to stop this marriage and insisting that since, as the King of France, he was technically her sovereign, Mary couldn't marry without his permission, but none of them were having any of it. On the 19th of August, 1477, Mary and Maximilian were married in Ghent, in person, in front of an outrageously pompous assembly of the Burgundian and Imperial nobility and clergy. Margaret of York must have breathed an immense sigh of relief in the knowledge that she had played a pivotal role in securing her stepdaughter's foreseeable future. She had also managed to secure her own position, insisting on getting Maximilian's approval for her rights to her dower lands and incomes the night before the wedding. It is remarkable to think that, after having arrived in Burgundy a decade prior, her main political purpose had been to solidify English and Burgundian relations. Rather, what Margaret had helped achieve was to usher in a shift in major international influence in the Low Countries. We have seen how France was an ever-looming threat on the region's political landscape, while the interests of those running the German Empire were only sporadically drawn to it. Now, however, an 18-year-old German prince had arrived amidst his own sense of heroism to take control of the Low Countries and steer them through this tidal wave of political and social chaos. And we will see how he goes at that in the episodes to come. Thanks for listening to The History of the Netherlands. We are extremely excited to have gotten through the meat and bones of the famous Burgundian period, and we are even more stoked that you have come along for the ride with us. Turns out a lot happened in the 1400s, eh? Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? There is no way it would be possible, however, without the amazing support given by our patrons, the absolute champions who sign up over on patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. That's where you can add your name to the great privilege of Patreon. You can literally choose any amount of money you like, whether in dollars, euros, or pounds. You can send some florins if you want, and you will get early and ad-free releases of every episode, as well as whatever bonus content we randomly decide to get stuck into. Much like Mary and Maximilian's wedding, we like to thank everyone who supports us in our own outrageously pompous way. So without further ado... Let us gather and acknowledge the following illustrious signatories to the great privilege of Patreon. Nicholas Ferry Bargeman. Hurrah! Who started listening to the show to understand his grandparents better, but instead has only learned about his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Stephen Matthias. Hurrah! Thanks, Steve-o. Matto. Steve-o Matto. Joost Hedgy Eitdehach. Hurrah! who we assume once had an ancestor who jumped out of a bush one day. Gary Hillick Greenhalgh. Hurrah! Thanks for your messages of support, and we're stoked to hear that you enjoyed the free and fearless specials that we made. And finally, MJ meets us in the space where cricket and Dutch history unite. Knuster. How's that? Neither of us ever imagined meeting anyone else in this Venn diagram we exist in. But there's plenty of room for more of us in here. Dutch cricket is on the rise, so if you're not watching it already, get into it. Hashtag Maxwell for Australia. That's it for this week. 
Nunkyuli Bell and Dewey. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.